pastor, and uh, I'm one of your missionaries. You've graciously supported NETS for several years now, and I want to thank you for that. And it's my privilege this morning to bring you the word. Uh, Let's commit this time to the Lord and as we look at his word. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Enable us to see him more clearly, to understand his work uh, in a deeper way than we ever have. We give this time to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm used to preaching about an hour, and uh, I know that's not going to fit this service format, so bear with me a little bit. I get three tries because I'm preaching this Sunday and then the next two. So three strikes and I'm out. I might not quite hit it this week, so, but we'll go quickly and try to see if we can get you out of here by, uh, by 2 o'clock. I think that's what Ed told me. Um, My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Of course, that's one of America's national anthems before we finally settled on the Star-Spangled Banner in 1931. But it still reverberates, it still touches our hearts, doesn't it? And that phrase, let freedom ring. And of course, in that context, we're talking about political freedom. Now this morning, I want to address spiritual freedom. That is, freedom from sin's horrific penalty, from sin's debilitating power, and ultimately from sin's awful presence when Christ returns. So this morning... I'd like to begin by asking you some questions. Pretty blunt, New England, Maine, Yankee questions. Are you spiritually free from sin? It's not a trick question, but it is a nuanced question. Let me ask it this way. Does freedom ring out of your life Right now, as it expresses itself in newness, in newness of life. Do you struggle with sin, though you're making progress with those sins? Or are you still a slave to sin? No freedom. Our passage this morning... John chapter 8, 31 to 36, uh, is going to address that. But before we look there, let's put this question of spiritual freedom in a little bit of biblical perspective. Now, I'm assuming you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, so we need not turn there. But let me just reference it in reviewing the history of our spiritual freedom. You remember in Genesis 2, God issued A single restriction with a sober warning. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. Well, what did that mean? What was God threatening Adam with? Of course, you know spiritual death. But what is spiritual death? What do we mean when we say spiritual death? 
Well, do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? They were cast out of the garden. They were banished from God's presence. And that's the essence of spiritual death. To die eternally, the second death, to die spiritually, is to be separated forever from God's presence. In Adam, that's the, the wage that we all earned. We believe in the doctrine of original sin. His sin is our sin. And thus we all earned death, separation from God. And that penalty is so unspeakably awful that the Scriptures employ horrific imagery to describe it. Imagery like weeping and gnashing of teeth. Imagery like utter darkness. Like the lake fire, like eternal punishment away from the presence of the Lord. That's the imagery that's necessary to get through our minds how horrible being separated from God really is. So, losing our spiritual freedom entails the penalty of spiritual death. To be exiled from his presence. And with that estrangement comes the loss of moral freedom. And I can break that down in a couple of components. First, that loss means the inability to be able to see God. To behold the most beautiful being in the universe. 1 John 3 3, verse 6 says it this way. No one who sins, no one who practices sin, has seen him or knows him. You see, there's a spiritual sight problem, isn't there? Or 3 John 11 says, the one who does evil has not seen God. When we sinned, we lost our spiritual sight. Our ability to see Almighty God. We became spiritually blind. That's what happened when we sinned. We lost our spiritual sight. And we also, secondly, lost our spiritual power. Our ability to obey God. Our ability to submit to His law. Romans 8, 5 and following talks about that. You don't need to turn There, But it says that the mind that is set on the flesh is is death. It's hostile to God. It's unable to submit itself to the law of God. And in summary, it cannot, it cannot please God. See, that's an issue of ability. We've lost our sight and we've lost our power. We cannot. It's not just that we will not. We cannot, outside of Christ, in Adam, submit to God's law. In fact, this loss of power extends. It extends to the inability to even believe in Christ, to come to Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 6.44? That no one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father draws him. See, we don't have the ability to come to Christ. 
We're spiritually blind and we're spiritually dead. You can yell at a corpse all you like, but it won't respond. We have hearts of stone, incapable, outside of Christ, incapable of moving one inch, one iota, toward Christ. In Adam, we lost our moral freedom. Loss of sight, loss of power, unable to see God. Unable to obey God. We're enslaved. Outside of Christ, we're enslaved to sin. We have no moral freedom. Now, by the way, though we can't linger here, the wretched man in Romans 7, let me submit to you, is not a Christian. Though often it's interpreted that way. Here's what the passage itself declares in See, see for yourself after the service. Go to Romans seven thirteen to 25. But that man in Romans 7 is of the flesh, he says in verse 14. He's sold into bondage to sin. And despite delighting in the law, he's imprisoned to the law of sin and death. He delights in the law of God, but he's still imprisoned to the law of sin and death, which issues forth in that cry. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this death? Now, this takes us to our passage in John chapter 8. You probably wondered if we were going to look at that. Uh, Turn with me to John chapter 8. I want to pick it up in verse 30. John chapter 8, it says, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Don't believe everything you read. It says, Many came to believe in him. Let's see. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, the verse 30 Jews, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Well, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits, or as the ESV says, practices sin, is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free... You will be free indeed. And I'll read verse 37 as well. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. So Jesus begins with a powerful pushback to the Jews who had just supposedly believed in him. And his pushback is in the form of freedom's characterization. Well, how does Jesus characterize freedom? He says that freedom is abiding in his word. Well, what does that mean? It means keeping or obeying his commandments. In other words, only those who persevere in obeying his word are free. But free from what? Look at verse, again, look at verse 33 and following. The Jews are rejecting this notion. They'll have none of it. They recoil at his characterization and its implication that they are slaves. They recoil at that and they assert their pedigree, don't they? 
They go to their ethnicity in verse 33. We're of the seed of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, Jesus will have none of that. He plunges the knife by identifying their master. Verse 34. Who is their master? It's sin. Everyone who commits or practices sin is a slave to sin. Later on in the passage, he'll further identify their master as the devil. But their master here is sin. In other words, Jesus says, you Jews show yourselves to be slaves, not free by virtue of your regular practice of, and thus enslavement to sin. That's how you demonstrate that you're actually a slave to sin. You're not free at all. And then he follows it up by, if you will, turning the knife. And he does that by associating them, these Jews, with the despised Ishmaelites in verse 35. Remember the story? Ishmael, the slave, the son of the bondwoman Hagar, Hagar was cast out of Abraham's house. Like Ishmael, they have no place in Abraham's house because they are not of Abraham's spiritual seed, which, of course, comes only by faith. So you see, verse 36, only if the Son makes you free, which hasn't happened to these Jews, as evidenced, by the way, by their desire to kill Jesus. It's tough to be a believer in Jesus and want to kill Jesus at the same time. Doesn't really work, does it? Consequently, uh, they are not free from their sin. Only if the Son makes you free are you free from your sin. And here's the good news. The moment, the moment a person believes in Jesus Christ, at that very moment, they are freed from their sin. And what does that mean, to be freed from sin's enslavement? Faith in Christ means to be free, results in being free, not only from sin's penalty, but from sin's power. Andreas Kostenberger, in his excellent commentary in the Gospel of John, says this, Jesus has set us free both from the guilt, that's its penalty, and from the life-controlling power of sin. So when the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're set free from the guilt of your sin, its penalty, and from the power of your sin. Praise God. That's, that's got tremendous ramifications, not to mention just incredibly wonderful news. But what does that look like? What does that freedom look like? How does it work? Well, let me suggest to you that there's, there's two phases of spiritual freedom. What we might call the already, I'm guessing you've heard this already, not yet idea before. Is that a new idea? Have you heard that idea before? Already, not yet. Well, let me introduce it for those that haven't heard it. There's the already phase, sort of the inauguration of the kingdom, what we've experienced up to this point through this point in redemptive history. And then there's the not yet phase. What's going to happen in the future? The consummation of the kingdom. 
That will come about when Jesus returns. So let's take a few minutes to examine the already phase of spiritual freedom. You and I are free to behold Christ in the already. Now remember, we were blind. That was one of the results of our sin. But now we're free. And initially, we were free to behold Him when we came to faith. Now, we don't have time to turn to it. Do you remember the story in Numbers chapter 21? The Israelites, as usual, were grumbling. And God sent fiery serpents in their midst. This is nasty business. And the text says that many, many died. And Moses, of course a type of Christ, does what? He intercedes for the people. And God says, okay, make a bronze serpent and attach it to a standard, attach it to a pole, so that whenever the Israelites are bitten by the serpents, if they look upon the bronze serpent, they will live and not die. And Jesus picks this up in John 3, doesn't he? He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, God will lift up, the Son of Man will be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in Him, whoever beholds Him, whoever gazes at Him, has eternal life. That's right. God did a work in your life. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, He did a work in your life to enable you to initially behold His Son. Because remember, no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws Him. God had to open our eyes. The old hymn says it this way, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. That's right. He had to diffuse that quickening ray, didn't He? I was dead in my sins, I was blind. My ears were stopped. And God broke through in the context of the hearing of the gospel. And he gave me sight to behold his son and for the first time ever to recognize the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I once was lost. Now I'm found. Was blind. But now I see. Amazing grace. And because of that, because He has initially opened my eyes, we're free to continually behold Him in order to be transformed into His image. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? I think a familiar passage. Maybe we're looking at it a little differently this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll pick it up in verse 17. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If we read the whole section, we'd see that a veil was over our eyes. And when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. There is freedom. Verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another, the ESV says. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit. See, you and I are free to behold Christ. Never take that for granted. That's a grace gift. He has freed us to see Christ. I mean, what distinguishes you from an unbeliever? Have you, have you talked to unbelievers before and you tell them about this wonderful Savior and they just look at you like they're a donkey looking over the fence? It's not connecting, is it? Why isn't it connecting? You say, what more can I say? Nothing. God has to illuminate them so that now what was ho-hum, humdrum, not even very interesting, maybe even irritating, now becomes beautiful and lovely. And we become captivated by it. You and I are free to behold Christ, who is the glory of the Lord. He's the radiance of His glory. And as a result, we are being transformed into His image. As it turns out, as it turns out, you're not really what you eat. You know, that's good news. I had a double quarter pounder on the way up to Maine yesterday. I'm not a quarter pounder. That's not what I am. It does turn out, it turns out that you are what you behold. You're being transformed into what you worship. Praise God. You and I are free to behold Albeit imperfectly, because it's through a glass darkly, a mirror dimly, we are free to behold the beauty of our God in the face of His Son, who is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. We are free to behold the sacrifice. But we're also free to present ourselves to God as sacrifice in imitation of His Son. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. This is a familiar verse. Maybe the most significant exhortation in the whole Bible because I think it's in the most significant book in the Bible, the book of Romans. Romans puts it all together, in my opinion. Jesus, therefore... Let me see, I'm in John chapter 12. I said Romans chapter 12, sorry. Nothing against John 12. It's a good chapter. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You and I are free to present ourselves as a sacrifice. A sacrifice that's living, a sacrifice that's holy, a sacrifice which is acceptable. We're free to do that. We're free. Here's the freedom you have. You were a slave to sin. You and I are now free to present ourselves to God as slaves to righteousness. As slaves to God. Because, in fact, that's what we are. We have a new identity. We've been delivered from the power of sin, and we're now free to walk, to live, not by our feelings, not by those old sinful habits, 
but in newness of life. We are free to walk in newness of life. For the Son has set us free in Christ. We're free. Indeed, we're free, even compelled by the Spirit, to mortify or put to death the deeds of the body, those besetting sins. We're free. We're characterized, Romans 8 12 and 13 say, by the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. And part of that mortification is increased groaning for final deliverance. Do you notice the chorus of groaning in Romans chapter 8? Creation is groaning for it. Believers are groaning for it. The redemption of their bodies, that final resurrection. Even the Holy Spirit is groaning for it, isn't it? Everybody's groaning for Christ to come back. In fact, let me suggest that that's really what the Lord's Prayer is. It's just one big groan in six petitions. The first three were specifically praying for Christ's return. And what are the last three? We're praying for preservation until Christ returns. We're praying for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. We're praying for pardon. Forgive us our debts. And we're praying for perseverance. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Protect us, O God, so that we'll persevere to the end. We're really groaning. We're groaning for our redemption. And that groaning allows us to more and more fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what my problem is? I hope in the wrong things. I lean into the wrong things. And there's no other hope that won't ultimately disappoint us except the hope of Jesus Christ. You know, I've been, I've been married 42, almost 43 years now. I've got five wonderful kids. They all know Christ. Their spouses all know Christ. They're all healthily involved with the church. And they've been busy giving us 17 grandkids. And I don't think they're finished. And there's a lot there to be thankful for, and there's even a lot to hope for. But every one of them are going to let me down. And I'm going to let every one of them down. Because death, if Jesus tarries, is going to take us all out. And so we're groaning asking God to fix, help us to fix our hope completely, as 1 Peter 1 says, completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ, on His return. That's what stabilizes our souls. And we're free to do that. We're free to groan for that and aspire to that. So how should that affect us? Three things in closing. First is a diagnostic for faith. This freedom construct should help us to answer the question, are we spiritually free? In other words, are we struggling with sin, though making progress? Or are we still a slave to sin, stuck in our sin? One way to get at that is to look at the list in Galatians chapter 5, the deeds of the flesh, and say, am I making progress in these areas? Is 
are those deeds more and more in my rearview mirror. They're not absent. They're not gone. But I can see an upward trajectory, an upward slope to the line. Maybe the slope isn't as steep as I'd like it to be, but it's an upward slope. Progress is the operative word. You know, the Bible is clear. If you're not making progress, if you're stuck in your sins, you have devil faith. You might assent to orthodoxy with your mind, but your heart hasn't been changed. It hasn't been renewed. And you say, well, Wes, that's not a really positive idea to talk about. Yes, but I'd rather talk about it now than you find out at that last day when Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. But here's the good news. If you're making progress, and you know how I measure progress? In 10-year increments. See, the problem is if you look at yesterday... It's kind of discouraging, isn't it? Like I had a lousy week, and yesterday was a pinnacle of that. But if you look in 10-year increments like I do, I'm in my fifth 10-year increment as a Christian. It's like, yeah, I can see progress. I remember 40 years ago. That was an ugly picture. It's a little bit better now. So as long as you're making progress, even if the bell of freedom is ringing softly in your life, as long as it's ringing and you're making progress, you can praise God. Hallelujah. You are spiritually free. So it's a good diagnostic. Second, it's the basis for assurance. We don't have time this morning to work through Romans 5 through 8, but if we did, we would see that our walk in newness of life, our walk as living as slaves to righteousness, is actually the primary basis of assurance in the Scriptures. To say it another way, we know that we shall be delivered from sin's presence because we've already been delivered from sin's power. That's the argument of Romans 5-8. to We've experienced salvation's power in the already And that undergirds our hope for final deliverance in the not yet. You see, freedom is ringing out from us. And that assures us of our final freedom, our full and complete freedom in the life to come. And then finally, it's a fuel for joy and for prayer. This spiritual freedom construct helps us. I don't know about you, but my joy seems far too often controlled by my circumstances. I'm guessing you can relate to that. You know, if it's a good day, I'm happy. If it's not so good of a day, I'm not so happy. If it's a really bad day, I'm sad and probably mad. What are those things, those circumstances? Things like my health or my relationships or whether I feel I'm getting the appropriate affirmation ministry success. All those things seem way too important and too controlling as it relates to my joy. And when I read the Psalms, I read a Psalm every day. Today's Psalm 11. When I get home, I'm going to read Psalm 11. Today's the 11th. When I get home, Psalm 11. When I read the Psalms, I have trouble feeling the way they tell me to feel. 
those hallelujah psalms, and there's a chunk of them in 113 to 118, of course, 145 to, to 150, and then sprinkled all through the other psalms are all sorts of praises. Uh, they convict me with their enjoinders to sing and to dance and to worship the Lord. What, what do they expect me to do? Be a Pentecostal? <laughs> Raising my hands with all manner of instruments? That's what the Psalms enjoin me to do. But I, I've been set free. You've been set free, dear Christian, from sin's penalty, from sin's power. You were a slave. You were imprisoned to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And the Son has set you free. And as Jesus said, we're to rejoice because our names are written in heaven. That's why we're to rejoice, right? And by the way, this also helps us with our anemic prayer lives. I'll speak for myself. We rejoice already, yes, but we groan, or we should be groaning and imploring God for the not yet. Because what's awaiting us in that day? What awaits us is the complete vanquishing of sin and the swallowing up of death in victory. That's what awaits us. And we ought to be groaning for that. Begging God to set us free finally. And so, how do we close? Really, if we're clear-headed, how do we close every prayer? Even so. Even so. Come quickly. Lord Jesus, let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has set us free. Let us rejoice accordingly. And let us pursue holiness and that final freedom that will come at his return. We pray in his name. Amen. This time I'll have the the men come forward who will be helping with the communion today. Again, as I've said many times before, when the gospel is preached, the communion uh, flows right from it. Um, The Lord, in his great mercy to us, knew that we were forgetful and knew that we needed to continually be reminded of the truth that was just spoken. Uh, Weekly we gather, and even throughout the week we gather to remind ourselves that we have been set free in Christ. And he continues to provide for us uh, in, in the Lord's Supper, not only to remind us of what happened so long ago, but also that he's coming back again to finalize it. And so we partake in this as a wonderful uh, meal to, to uh, remind us of the new covenant, um, but to be nourished spiritually as well through it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Those that have been set free by Christ, let us eat as one. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.